Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 69. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. Uh, and we have been busy in the shop working on issue 16 uh, in the final stages of production for that, going to the printer really soon. Also anticipating our apprenticeship program, our eight-week online program launching soon. It's going to be running uh, April and May. So if you're interested in that kind of uh, education, it's mtapprenticeship.com. And also, you know, we do have a few more days to uh, get in before subscriptions uh, move on to the next issue. So if you're interested in issue 16, uh, you can jump on our website and uh, check out the the latest uh, issue in this new subscription. So I think the 27th, if you can get subscribed by the 27th, you'll be all set. You get this issue hot off the press. All right. We are doing something new today. Uh, We have a special guest uh, joining us for a conversation. Um, Andy Glenn is a furniture maker, instructor, and author. He attended the North Bennett Street School and oversaw the woodcraft program at Berea College for several years. And he's recently relocated to Walderboro, Maine, just a couple hours down the coast from where we are here and just minutes away from the headquarters of Lee Nielsen. Um, his new book, Backwoods Chairmakers, In Search of the Appalachian Ladderback Chairmaker, was published last year, 2023, by Lost Art Press. And so we wanted to have Andy in uh, to talk about his life, uh, what he's doing, uh, what he's up to, his book, and um, what he sees in the future for himself and for handcraft in general. So Andy, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Joshua, Mike, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, we've been friends for a while, uh, talking about different things, talking about Wendell Berry and furniture making, all sorts of things. Um, and this new book is super exciting. You know, we have a copy of it, and we've been looking at it, and it's just gorgeous. Mm. Um, and your furniture making is the same; it's just gorgeous. So we're excited to see you uh, back up in Maine <laughs> yeah. and getting settled in here and doing good work, uh, writing and teaching as well, uh, inspiring people to work with their hands. Um, I, this book just came out how long ago? I mean, a few months ago at this point, right? It's not too long. It's pretty fresh. It is. Um, I think it had a, a copyright of 2023. I think they got a uh, Lost Art Press got it back from the printer uh, mid to late January yeah. and started shipping. So it's it's been out for a few weeks at this point. Yeah. Must feel good. It feels incredible. Yeah. Writing, <laughs> writing. This was my first book. Um, I had no idea yeah. what I was getting into. Um and it uh-huh. was wonderful, and I never thought it would get to this point. So, yeah. How long have you been working on this book? Maybe four years. It might have been a four-year project. Right before, you know, four it, years. it was a, was about to get started right before COVID, and then uh, COVID knocked things for a loop for a while, um, and then it's then it got got moving again. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, we. Um, <clears throat> Looking through it, I, I wondered if you had found any inspiration for this book effort in the Foxfire books. I know you you uh, have at least one or, or more quotes maybe from Foxfire Contacts. I think it was, um, uh, who was it? It was um, Myron Woody, I believe, you mm-hmm. quoted uh, back towards the end of the book. But um, it just has that kind of feel, you know, these these interviews mixed with really practical how-to information mixed with... Uh, really interesting photos and things like that. So I wondered if if you had found inspiration there. I I, I did definitely. I, you know, 
I've got the collection of Foxfire and um, and love them. And I think this book could sit on the shelf beside them. Um, Mm. And so you'll see something, you know, it'll have a similar feel to Foxfire. My my hope was to write these from uh, a chairmaker's perspective. So all of the, you know, all the different threads, all the different stories, they all kind of come back towards woodworking, chair making, um, the craft, um, no matter how, no matter where those stories lead, we, we always come back to chair making. Yeah, that's mm. so cool. So what was, what was your process for, I mean, uh, to me, the idea of saying, I want to gather from the breadth of the Appalachian chair makers, uh, you know, a, a sizable pool to go interview, talk to, what was your what was your process for arranging interviews? Um, it, it, it took a little bit to, to find um, some of the chairmakers. Uh, uh, some chairmakers have an internet presence. Um, you can find them online with a, with a Google search and um, phone, number, phone number, email address. And, uh, you know, I could just reach out that way. Um, others, um, I, you know, I talked to folklorists or maybe town photographers um, people with long, a long history in the communities, and they may know of chair makers um, in their communities. And I would, I would cold call them, and um, that really didn't have much success um, because I was just <laughs> calling out of the blue. You know, I was just a, um, um, you know, a, a, an area code from away, and, and so. For those who were interested, we had a conversation over the phone, and then I would, you know, we'd find a time where I could would come, could come and visit, and we could get started that way. Yeah, I wondered how how you were received uh, in general. <laughs> uh, very, most of the time, very warmly. Um, hmm. Everyone was welcoming um, to me, but there was a definitely a hesitation. Um, just to get a better understanding of, of who I am as a person and what I intended to do with their stories. So, mm-hmm. and that's where the phone call really didn't, um, didn't always, you know, bear any fruit. You know, I'm a first time author. Um, many of the chairmakers didn't know of Lost Art Press, so that didn't carry any weight. And, um, and people of Appalachia are not always treated kindly by outsiders. And so there's a, there's a bit of um, just caution. And so I, f- I found where, you know, this, this t- took a little while, but if, if, I, if I would show up and we could just sit and talk for a while, you know, I kept all the gear in my vehicle. Um, we'd find a place to sit and we'd, we'd just, I could share what, what uh, you know, what the project was about. Um, they could ask me questions. And then at some point, you know, they would usually say, well, we better, we better get to this if we're going to do it. And so that would, that would kick it off. We could, we could start the, um, interview and photographs. And then that, that could start a relationship where we could talk on the phone afterwards. Mm. Nice. Mm. Did, did it help you think that you are a furniture maker yourself? Do you think that helped at all? It did. It did. We could, we, we could have that, uh, conversation. I could appreciate their work in that manner. And so that gave me credibility 
that we could talk about their chairs, yeah. look at different details, um, you know, go into depth there. Um, and oddly enough, um, the work of Chester Cornett, you know, when I would I make these phone calls, you know, a number of people probably happened a half dozen times where, where people would say, you know, have you have you read Craftsman's of the Cumberlands? Do you know of Chester Cornett? And I think they were they were trying to pass on a little information, but they were also like, you know, that was kind of, you know, a test of for me, like, yeah. you mm-hmm. you know, if if, if you know a Chester, you yeah, real? can you get past this hurdle? Yeah, and um, yeah, of course, I, you know, I love Chester, so that led to a good conversation, and then we could we could open up a little bit more. Yeah. Uh- that that's really cool. So he he was kind of the uh, the the legend that would uh, allow you access, right? He was the the one that they looked up to, um, and he was kind of the the shibboleth to see if you knew, you know, the the lingo of the the makers of the yes, region. Yes, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, yeah. So what um, what was your sense talking like I. <clears throat> Looking through your book, it's amazing to me, certainly the number of chairs still being made. What is the the state of the craft in Appalachia? What is the market for the chairs that are being made? Are they like really niche? Like um, up here, you know, we have these these little craft markets where things are pretty expensive, uh, one of a kind type of thing. Or is it more of the uh, like the the Cracker Barrel front porch chair or is it something in between that? Yeah, great. Good question. Um, anytime I could, I put prices in the book. Um, yes. So you'll see yeah. the range that, that people are working with then. And I think there's, um, there is a, a wide range of what, what people ask for their chairs. Um, the state of the craft... Um, I, I, I got to think about that one a little bit. You know, I, I traveled about and, and met as many people as I could, but by no means are these all the chairmakers out there. Um, these, you know, the criteria, f- as I searched, um, I, w- I w- was looking for people who made chairs and made income, made a part of their income from chairs. Right. Which, um, They're not just hobbyists. What's that? They're not just right, hobbyists. Right. Um, yeah. But I didn't differentiate between like these aren't, you know, full time, part time really wasn't wasn't a helpful thing to think about. You know, the chairs were part of their lives, you know, and some of them Mm. were full time, all time chair makers. Sometimes chairs were um, there was a season for chair making or a season for when they don't make chairs, like say they they would do something else in the winter. recharge and then uh, chairs were spring to fall like Tom Lynch. Um, Mm. And they, you know, this is another thing I tried to add whenever I could. Um, They all found ways to sell their chairs, you know, that, you know, to do this, they have to be able to sell. Uh, Lyle Wheeler talked quite a bit about how, you know, that was an emphasis of his chapter was um, how he's gone about selling chairs. Some of them found, um, shows and fairs where, where if they consistently showed up, um, their audience would find them and others like Mason Alexander in, um, Rock Castle, Kentucky does, 
no advertising, no internet or phone. Um, you have to f- find a chair, want it from him, and then go back and order it. And he has as many chairs as he wants, you know, and he's been doing it for 50 years that wow. way. And um, actually, I, wow. I purchased one of, you know, my memento from this trip is I picked, purchased a chair from him, a little side chair. Um, that was $200, you know, handmade hickory bark seat, that sort of thing. Mm. Wow. Wow. So it's interesting to me to, to think about the quantity of these chairs being made today and thinking about, um, you know, are, are there other kinds... Of, of furniture that have this kind of um, high, small scale, high production sort of thing, whether it's chests or tables or whatever, or this really seems to be this Appalachian chair thing. How many chairs do these people need? You know, like there seems to be this this whole market, and it's just curious to me. Uh, do you did you find that with other forms of furniture, or is this really sort of a, a chair culture? What there may be other forms. There's you know, Appalachia has a, a basket basketry culture as well. Um, but I was, you know, we lived in Berea, Kentucky for four years and this, I did the work while down, um, down living in, in Kentucky. Um, I was just taken aback by all the handmade chairs, you know, um, flea markets, garage sales, junk shops, pizza shops, you know, there'd be a, a hickory bark ladder back just tucked over to the side. And, um, they were almost so common that they were, they weren't noticeable. And, um, that, that got me interested in it. And, um, before this project came about, I reached out to, reached out to Terry Ratliff, who's a longtime chairmaker in Eastern Kentucky mountains. And, um, he welcomed me over for a couple of days just to, to see him, to work with him a little bit on making chairs. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. It's interesting because, you know, as you know, in new England, um, ladder back chairs were everywhere for a time and then they went away and Appalachia, they never went away. Um, you know, so that would explain how there's so many more, you know, as you say, but there's still that market for the handmade ladder back, which I guess has gone and been replaced up here and in other parts of the country, that market maybe no longer exists or has just changed so much that it would be hard to, to reintegrate that sort of thing up here. Um, you know, people, you know, looking at the prices in your book, it was, uh, amazing. You know, you have that, uh, the one, um, maker making a bunch of chairs in a week, charging like 60 bucks for a chair or or $65 for a chair. And that's, uh, amazing to me. It does remind us of, um, we look at old, uh, shop records to see how quickly those chairs could have been made at times in the past. And, uh, you know, we want to learn more, like how were they able to make these chairs at this price and still turn a profit, still be profitable? Um, one question that we do get asked a lot by people, people write to us and they, they give us their, their life story and they say, I want to make a go at making furniture. I want, how viable is that really? You know, um, how realistic is it to, for me to build furniture for a living? I have this set of skills, Right. Did you gain any insights uh, into that? Either, well, you, I'm sure you certainly have insights of your own from making a go at it, but also from those people who have been doing it or who, who've been doing it for 50 years. Uh, what did you learn from them? Um, yeah, there were definitely a number of these chairmakers um, entered the field. You know, I think 
there were, you know, I, I think after, after I interviewed everyone, you could kind of group people in different, uh, put people in different groups, um, shaved versus turned furniture. And that definitely impacts the output. Um, and then a different category could be, um, those who grew up in a, f a family line shop. So they may be a generational shop and those who have entered the craft field, entered chair making. And, um, there were a number of people who entered, um, entered this field, you know, and, and hmm. made a living through woodworking, through, through chair making. Um, the insight, I think the insight is the same as it is everywhere. Like it's incredibly hard. You know, there were, you know, there was burnout, there was, um, frustration, you know, the market's fickle. Um, it's easier to make a living elsewhere, you know, so there are constant stresses and, um, considerations to leave it, you know, uh, to make, to make, to get insurance, to get, uh, to have uh, right. a retirement account to uh, provide better for a family. And so all those things are extremely real and, and that everyone faces. And, um, you know, what was, what was nice was, or one of the things I really appreciated is, you know, the chair makers sharing some of those things, you know, uh, Terry Ratliff talking about, you know, considering going into the coal industry at, at, at different points in his career. Oh, wow. And then along those times, just something came along that, that brought him right back into it um, and, and provided a spark and he got some more business and things kept going, going along. Wow. wow. <clears throat> so do you think that, um, how does that relate to the process? Uh, you know, at m and we're interested in pre-industrial process, and I know that a lot of these pre-industrial crafts, as they've um, been uh, continued, um, that they've been beginning to incorporate some sort of uh, mechanization into the process. Of course, that's sort of a historic story. Um, but even now, you know, whether it's Japanese boat building or it's Appalachian chair making, um, mechanization has been utilized in some ways. I'm thinking also about Chester Cornett and the way that he brought some machines in and his, uh, I guess you'd say, tense relationship with that, his struggle, you know, and um, how he got injured himself with uh, with these things. And so uh, I saw, you know, in the book, there are there seems to be quite a variety of people, some people uh, much more uh kind of hand tool only kind of oriented and some people um, seem very open to employing as uh, you know a bunch of mechanized methods how does that what is the balance that you saw um, and how does that relate to um, the the viability of making a living did you see a correlation or is it more, are there other factors that uh, you know I guess what I'm thinking is if somebody's more hand tool oriented are they do they tend to struggle to make a living uh, more than someone who's mechanized? Did you see that correlation or not? I did. I didn't see the correlation. You know, it, it, at least it wasn't readily apparent. Um, it was hard, regardless of the uh, the the choice towards machinery or not. And what I found it was just the maker's choice. You know, what they preferred to use. Um, you know, I'd interview people. They said you know, an Appalachian chair is handmade. And so I'm, I make it with all hand tools. That's how it's supposed to be made. And then others who mm -hmm. took a very different approach, turned to their parts, 
Um, you know, uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier, um, Cannon County, the, the $65 chairs, you know, that's a, that's a small cottage industry. Um, this is generalizing things, but within Cannon, Cannon County, um, Tennessee, there's this history of white oak basketry by the women. Um, men um, were in chair making, um, and the shops are very similar. They're they're turned parts. Everything's as efficient as can be, and the, they end up wholesaling their chair, chairs for between fifty and seventy bucks. Um, and their competition is the Cracker Barrel um, kind of plastic wrapped. Okay. Um, right, but. In, in working that way, they can make, you know, 20 to 40 chairs in a week. And um, they've been doing it for generations. So they're finding success there. And, yeah. and how many people are in that <clears throat> shop that are making that many chairs? Um, the, oh, there's there. I believe there are four shops still at it. One is um, the Davis family. There's two people in that shop. Um, mm-hmm. And then the others are single makers. Maybe a helper comes part time. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So one to two people. There used to be, wow. yeah, small, there used to be yeah. thirty or forty shops, maybe a generation ago, and so now they're down to four. Um, and you know, so there's there are definitely changes, plenty of changes happening. Do they are? Have you, did you find are they open to teaching other people? Is this something that they would welcome as many people making chairs as possible, or did you find there's sort of a protection of this this heritage and sort of a a reticence to to divulge the the trade secrets, as it were? What did you notice a difference? Were some people more open to that, or um, especially as they're kind of seeing uh, this dwindling uh, field of of you know, craftsmen, are they getting worried about that? Um, I can't really speak to that within Cannon County. Like I showed up Thursday, like this book was, I called, I called a little bit, reached out to some shops ahead of time. This book was so abstract, you know, they were like, you know, sure you can show up, you know, if you're around, I might be here, I might not. And so when I came, um, (laughs) actually Alf Sharp, um, a uh, furniture maker lives in County, Cannon County. And he was kind of my chaperone. He, he was my key to getting into these shops. And so they were very welcoming and shared with me. Um, I was there over a Thursday and a Friday. Um, but on the Friday, I went to a shop on my own. Um, Alf was unavailable. And this is in the middle of their production day. You know, they, they you know, you know, it, it was probably over within 15 minutes, you know, and I, it, it wasn't a personal thing. It was just, they've got chairs to make right. and, um, I was slowing yeah. things down. <laughs> That's right. So what, um, what stands out to you is if you think back and reflect on all these interviews, these people, um, you met and the, the chairs they made and the way they made them, does anything stand out to you as, as being, um, specifically inspiring or specifically inspiring to your own chair making anything that you said, I'm going to, I'm going to adopt that or that's brilliant. Uh, you know, I want to use that or 
um, some chair form that that really um, struck a chord with you? Anything like that that stands out to you? The, the method of making it was it was quite similar. Um, either um, either turned or shaved chairs. Most makers put the put the made sub assemblies. The front they'd put the front together. They'd make the back, and then they'd add the side rungs and put the chair together. Which um, you know, a lot of uh, many people who have, have made these chairs have, have um, gone about it through the books of, through uh, Jenny Alexander's book, uh, "Make a Chair from a Tree," which is different sides first, then the then the rungs, then you put the slats in last. And um, hmm. while many chair makers learned learn chairs uh, from Jenny, um, cro- either crossing paths or picking up that book or in a in a class, um, no one made a chair that way. They didn't like that approach, and they found um, some speed and um, they liked the results of being able to test fit slats before just putting them into the chair. So yeah. there were all sorts of tips and techniques that that I learned along the way. You know, when I build a chair now, I'm, I'm by no means an Appalachian chair maker, but when I when I work, I definitely there are tips. There there are different things I can see the Appalachian chair making within, within my work. Um, the other thing that kind of, you know, I spent a long time looking at these chairs and, and working with the chair makers. So like the chairs and the people, you know, how like people and their dogs start to look the same, like, uh, the chairs and the chair makers <laughs> right? started to like blend, uh, together a little bit. Wow. Which says a lot for Chester Cornet. It does. It does. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and yet, Josh, you, that, you mentioned you mentioned that. earlier, like uh, mechanization. Like Chester made it; his chairs showed the handmade um, character, you know, mm-hmm. handwork. And Chester had a stretch there where he got equipment, and he and he made he incorporated that equipment. But the chairs didn't have the same character during that that period, yeah. even though they, you know, they they just didn't have the same spark. And so he went back to, he, he, he kept um, some equipment where he felt it appropriate, but then he, he went back to the handwork and, and um, you know, I, I think a lot of the chair makers I, I visited followed something similar. You know, they found what they liked and what worked, worked for them and, and, and fit their chairs. Hmm. Did, were any of the makers um, self-consciously trying to highlight the natural state of this wood? So, you know, like on the cover of your book, the chair here, um, that with the, um, the components that are a little bit wavy, you know, following the grain, are there makers who said, uh, this is wood, it's wild. And I'm going to actually celebrate this sort of thing and let the wood be its weird self. Or is this sort of, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing turning, of course, your turnings are regular. Were there people that were self-consciously trying to, um, put these chairs forward as sort of an art statement and a creative expression as opposed to a utilitarian, you know, making lots of chairs, uh, for, for pragmatic reasons. Um, there, you know, Brian, Brian Boggs is in, is, is one of the chair makers I, I visited. And I think he would, I would probably answer to yes to every one of your questions, you know, in, in respect right. to Brian, like, yeah, but it also reminds me that, that Drew Langsner's an artist. Brian Boggs is an artist. Tom Lynch is an artist. These are, these are how they self-identify. 
Um, so there's going to be artistic decisions. They're looking at the chair through that lens. Mm. Whereas Randy Ogle, mm, yeah. um, third generation chairmaker in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, you know, absolutely not. He doesn't consider himself an artist. He's a craftsperson. So um, mm. as far as that flowing grain, um, only a couple of chairmakers. I only came across a couple who incorporated something like that. Um, Terry, Terry likes you know, the wavy wood around a knot and how it flows. And so that became uh, characteristic in his chairs. Um, maybe the front center rung or maybe the back rung. Um, you can also see it in Sherman Wooten's chairs, you know, which are big and wild. Um, yeah, right. And really show mm -hmm. the wood. But so there's the artistic piece of that. But, but also, as soon as you... Um, use anything that's not straight grain, you're slowing yourself down, um, both turning and shaving right. wise. So most of the people I visited were looking for those clear veneer grade logs to either um, dry a bit so they can get them on the lathe or to split and shave parts from. It, it, was, it, was, it was really only Terry and Sherman who, who used the sweep and the swells of wood. Mm -hmm. So would you say... Um, for your own chair making, uh, where do you fall? I fall more in this, the straight grain, uh, you know, as far as, as far as the, some of the material, um, I'm using, you know, I'm a craftsperson. Um, I love, I love designing and building, uh, furniture. I love wooden chairs. So I, you know, I make Windsors, I make a lot of ladder backs, um, yeah. Yeah. That's where I fall on things. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we got to see some of your chairs last year at Handworks and, um, you know, run, I got to run my hands over all the surfaces. I was like, these are, these are top notch. You know, you can, you can tell when extra attention to detail has been made. Um, so that, you know, as you're describing the chairs that you make, you know, there's something about them that's innately artistic uh, even if you're approaching it from just a, a workmanlike kind of perspective, these chairs are are just beautiful. Um, even even if you're not looking to be creative with them, but I I would say yours you you do add those extra details. You add those those flourishes, those little you know the tapering to the feet and things like that. That just um, they're just well executed in that way. Um, but I was wondering. Uh, for you personally, why chairs? You know, what inspires you about chairs specifically and making chairs? Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike, for some of those comments, um, those thoughts. Um, I, I, I love chairs because there's a sculptural aspect to it. You know, there's this design piece that um, can be pushed and pulled each time I, I make another chair. And also there's the utilitarian piece, you know, it, it needs to for, serve its function um, to sit around a table and to hold people for years and years. So it's the, it's the balance between the two that I really enjoy. I also like that, uh, you know, um, there's, it, you know, at least seemingly to me, there's no, there's no finish line, you know, with, with chairs, you can just, you just keep progressing, keep making, um, and keep going. So I, I like that aspect about them as well. Hmm. 
how have you, um, <clears throat> how has in your shop now in Waldeboro, Maine, um, as you're, you know, set up and, and building things, how does your process uh, compare or uh, how have you uh, refined your process for chair making in terms of hand tools, mechanization, and then some of the techniques that we saw? Because again, in the book, the book is not just interviews, but it, there's a lot of uh, practical tutorial type information showing different tips. And then, you know, you build a chair in the book, a couple chairs. Um, and so it's, um, do you find that uh, you have a way of making chairs and you just do it that way? Or for the book, did you build them one way? But then if you really had a commission for a set of six, you do it a different way. I'm, I'm curious how you've, you know, your takeaway from spending mm -hmm. four years <laughs> mulling this over and looking at these chairs. Um, how did, how does it now fit into your life and shape your work? Yeah. Going forward? Um, you know, I've got, I've, I've got a shop with equipment, you know, I've got a bandsaw close by here. I've got a mortiser, uh, a small planer. Um, I have that equipment. And so to me, like I enjoy splitting parts, chairs, uh, logs apart. I enjoy splitting all the parts apart and I do that, but, but I'm also sore and stiff for a few days afterwards. So I'm grateful to be able yeah. to say, make, uh, the slats, um, you know, rip them on a bandsaw, maybe quarter, quarter the log, quarter the parts, get all the grain running true the way I want it and then run it on the bandsaw and, and finish it in a planer. Um, and so I, I do as much handwork as I can, and then the machines will um, complement it. You know, I drill, drill all the mortises on either my mortiser for the slats or the drill press um, for, the, for the rungs. Um, but all, my, all of the rungs are, are shaved. I shave them down. And part of that's because I love sitting on the shave horse and, and having a draw, draw knife in my hand. So, uh, you know, I, yeah. so, some of it's practicality and then some of it's just that's the work I enjoy doing. How much of it is shaved versus turned, your, your work? Um, at least right now, um, all my ladder backs are, are shaved. You know, the, the Windsors have more turnings to them. Um, but, yeah, most... Yeah. Most of all my ladder backs are, are shaved at the moment. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And uh, so this year you're going to begin to offer classes out of your, your shop space there. Um, what, what kind of classes are you offering? And are those classes um, kind of aimed more at the hand tool end? Or are you doing the mixed um, machine and hand tool, your same process? Um, we'll do mostly hand tools during the class. Um, I, I explain it. I show what I do to let's say prep some parts for the class, that sort of thing. There's a bit of, um, especially with green woodworking where you're working with a wet log. Um, there's a bit of cooking show aspect to it where the parts need time to dry. So, yeah, you know, right. I'm all of prepped things the, day, the week before we'll split the log out, get every, all the components to that spot. And then we'll take the dry ones and keep moving. Um, so most of the week is work is handwork, draw knives, spoke shaves. Um, I'm sure we'll incorporate, we'll incorporate the drill press. Um, but talk through it if, if, and if anybody wants to bring a bit and brace, they're welcome to, to shave it, to, you know, to, to work with pure hand tools, but it's, it's more of this hybrid that I, that I do. 
Um, I know when I'm thinking about when we were talking with Kenneth Courtmeyer a while back, uh, he's a friend of ours, also from Maine. Um, and he's, you know, he was working with Drew Langsner for a while and they were teaching spoon carving classes. And he was talking about how Drew, when he was teaching spoon carving classes, he would say, this is the spoon you're making. Here's step one. Here's step two. Everybody's making the same spoon. Okay, let's keep going. And uh, Kenneth was saying, I just can't do that. And Angela uh, his wife said, yeah, he actually cannot carve the same spoon twice, <laughs> you know, right. but they're so gorgeous and, you know, um, petite and lovely. And so when Kenneth teaches spoon carving, he basically says, the sky's mm. the limit. You know, what kind of spoon do you want to make? And he's guiding them through that process. So when we were talking with him, we were talking about this difference in teaching philosophy. Um, do we, do you want to equip people in that very class to explore or are you trying to get them to get the core skills so that from there they can go and design how have you found i mean you were teaching in berea for a while and i'm sure that you had different aspects where that you were um, guiding people along yep. maybe but you also had some production work you were doing um maybe i'm curious about that experience and then also now in these sorts of classes where would you fall in that sort of teaching philosophy end of things you know Sometimes I think of them as like project-based or skill-based classes. Um, and you know, a number of my classes will, I'll show you the chair that we're working towards at the, at the start. And so as we work that week, we're, we're working towards that chair. We might t talk about how we can adapt it. We might even go at things multiple different ways, but we're, we, at the end of the week, we, we kind of all land in the same spot. At least that's the, that's the target, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, this summer I'll, you know, I'll teach another one that's, I think it's called, uh, it's like a ladder back design class. And it's just a week, you know, people will bring their own ideas and uh, I'll help facilitate it and I'll have the materials and a lot of the, and, and we'll, everyone will build a different chair during that week. And um, much like, you know, as you were mentioning with Kenneth, like my hope is there are all sorts of different ideas uh, moving at the same time during that week. Um, you, and, um, I found with a, with a group of people, I, I found that that, you know, if we all have this, a similar target, um, say a project-based class that kind of lends itself to that, to a group, especially, especially if, if someone's making a chair for the first time, you know, um, mm -hmm. they, yeah. Right. And that's just so hard. I mean, whenever you're learning anything new, you, you, it's kind of hard to be handed, you know, the keys to do whatever you want. You're like, I actually don't know what I want. Just teach me how to make a thing and then I'll go mm -hmm. from there. So in a, in a class where you're being introduced, you know, with someone's not coming at this as already having experience building a chair before, um, it can be a little bit um, disorienting or maybe even discouraging to be just told to do whatever you want. <laughs> You know, it's really nice to right. say, to be led along by a mentor to teach you, let's do this. I think yeah. so. And I think, I think, um, I, I uh, appreciate more and we try to do it with, we've tried to do it with different, you know, both at Pinecroft there in Kentucky. And, you know, as I, I get into some classes here, like just kind of list, uh, gently list in the class description, like, you know, this is a great first chair or, you know, this, you know, this one has some challenging concepts to it. It'll, it'll challenge you. Um, if you're ready, if you're ready for a challenge and, um, P 
people can people can if they're considering classes they can self-select like you know if they haven't picked up a draw knife or a spoke shave before you know one of those earlier classes might be the the place to be and then others you know um who have made a handful by themselves and want to want a different want to go at it something differently then they can they can land in those classes So um, North Bennett Street, uh, where where you went, is um, you know a, a Sloyd school, and I was wondering how much of that that teaching philosophy you were able to um, implement um, at your time at Pinecroft, and also if you're going to use that that same way of approaching teaching uh, in your own classes here in Maine. You mean uh, when you say that Sloyd approach, like build uh, building uh, hand hand skills that build upon themselves? Is that generally right? Yep, yep, yeah. We um, here here in Maine, I think we will will use that uh, model quite a bit, um, where we build one hand skill to the next. You know, uh, I'll have mm-hmm. I'll have all sorts of classes, but there'll be week long classes, and I think I think on the Sunday evening before, we'll probably just have a meal and maybe do sh- do some sharpening, which which tends to be the basis for all. Everything comes back to hand, to, to sharpness, um, right. you know, and we'll just start right. that way and then build from there. Um, you know, Pinecroft. I, I did a couple different. I did a couple different jobs in Berea. Um, I worked with the college students um, in Woodcraft um, with Berea College. It was Berea College is a work college. Um, students can work. It's part of their education. Ten to twenty hours a week, and they could work in the wood shop. Um, everything made then went back to supporting tuition. Um, that was more, I wouldn't say we did a plenty of handwork, but that was more of a, um, I was probably more of like a foreman type position. I was, I was both a, a coworker with the students, but also a trainer, a manager. Um, and the students were all, those students were, history majors, they were art majors, um, pre-med, you know, and they chose to, to work in the wood shop. What I found was if I, if I took two minutes to explain something that could have taken 30 seconds, I was wasting my time, you know, like, (laughs) you know, I could be romantic about handwork, but they, you know, they may not have been romantic about handwork or interested in handwork. They were interested right. in making. And so, um, mm-hmm. all of it was, all of it was, um, interesting to them, machines or handwork. And so we did, we did both, you know, we did, we worked, um, in both styles and those who were engaged in it and really loved woodworking just stuck with it and they'd stick with it for four years and keep mm-hmm. it as part of their, their life. Nice. And so you have you experienced as a teacher, uh, extensive experience as a teacher. You now are an author, and you're making furniture. Um, do you see those three things as you want to maintain those three things going forward? Do you want to continue to do this? Do you have another research project? Do you have your second book in mind <laughs> that you're starting to think about, uh, or how do you see going forward? What how you'd like to um, you know invest yeah. your energy and, and um, time. I, yes, I, I, I plan to continue on with both writing, 
um, making and, and teaching. Um, they're all um, quite enjoyable in different ways, obviously. Um, the teaching is just to share share the craft. And then, you know, the students taking the class are there to to get into it and to get something out of it and to learn and to, like, um, continue forward in their journey in the craft. So that being together and experiencing it together and to play a, play a part in it is, is quite rewarding. Um, and also it's a nice compliment. I mean, I'm in here in the shop by myself for long stretches. So to, to, to be in a room of people again is pretty fun and pretty nice. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I love, you know, the writing a book that was maddening and really fun. And I, I hope to do it again. You know, I have a few ideas swirling mm-hmm. about, but they're nothing, they're nothing more than seeds right now. So, yeah, it's a sickness. It's <laughs> addicting. You know, you just have these ideas you want to pursue, and you say it's so insane. Why would I take this on? But I can't. Yeah, stop. I can see that now. I, I think it was like two. I think it was two years ago. I was like, so somebody asked, How, "How's the book going?" I'm like, "It's really, it's really close. It's almost done." And it was, it was like, that was, I was two uh-huh. years off on that statement. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty I guess cool. not. That's not. I don't bad. know. You know, what did I know? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when I uh, started working on Hands Employed to Write, uh, published by Lost Art Press, similar situation, first book. Uh, and I remember showing, uh, taking Don Williams through the Jonathan Fisher house and showing what was there. And his very first reply, we, we, we were talking about the whole thing, walked out of the Fisher house and he said, that's a mm. five-year project. And I laughed. I was like, ha that's very funny. Yeah. You know, because I really thought it was to be, you know, a year and a half, a couple of years or whatever, and I'll wrap this thing up. Nope. Sure enough, five years of digging, yeah. rolling up sleeves. And I think part of it is being a furniture maker and interacting with uh, seeing you know, the, the chairs here, meeting other makers, and then thinking about not only your own personal fascination with it, but then thinking, I want to share this yes. with other woodworkers. Mm-hmm. That is an exciting thing to, there's just so much to, to celebrate and get excited about. And so um, it, that's where you can say, I want to do this right. I really want to spend four years writing this book about chair makers. Yeah. Um, I can, I can totally see you know, when you pick up this book and you look through, you say, this guy is obsessed. <laughs> this guy is really in it. He didn't just you know, churn this book out because he's trying to publish several books a year. He's, he really right. is uh, a believer. Yeah, I, I <laughs> did my best to do do it well and do it right by those chair makers. I mean, they, they you know, they welcomed me into their shops and they shared their stories. And, um, you know, and so I, so I did have an obligation to do it. I felt an obligation to do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my hope with the book is that it does feel like, you know, kind of have a scrapbook feel to it where you're, you know, you're mm-hmm. seeing a life in it. You know, e- each chair maker shared a little bit, obviously they shared different aspects of things. Some had different, a different emphasis than others. Um, but collectively you, you can, you can see, um, this full life of like how, how chair making fit into a life. Yeah. So Andy, what, uh, what kind of classes are you offering this year? This year I'm making, I'm offering a number of chair making classes here in Walterboro, um, at my shop. And then also, um, there's one class, um, a, a shaker, kind of a shaker style wooden carrier 
um, you know, angled dovetails, a beautiful cool. low box. Mm-hmm. So if people are interested, uh, what's their best way that they can get in touch with you or uh, learn more? Um, my website is andydglenn.com, and you can reach out that way. My, my okay. email address is there. Um, and then on social media, um, I'm on Instagram at andydglenn. Yes. Andy D. Glenn. All right. Yep. Cool. Well, this has been so awesome. This is yep. a gorgeous book. It's so exciting to see it out, especially after these years of talking about you, you know, working on the book and here it is. Yep. Uh, Mike and I love the book. We're so excited to see that it's out and we highly recommend to our listeners that they pick up a copy uh, and dig into it. And, and it just reminds me so much of my own interest in the Jonathan Fisher story and this seeing the beauty of these lives popping forward. They're not just chair makers, but they're actually mm-hmm. people with stories to tell. And this book really highlights that. So this has been a, a, an awesome conversation. Thank Thanks you for coming, Andy. Great to be here. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and as always, if you have comments or questions, you can leave them below. And if you could, uh, you could leave a review for a podcast. We always uh, like our reviews to be funny. So yes. leave a funny one. Be funny. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thanks. Mm-hmm.